Now, if you would turn with me in, in Colossians uh, chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 9 through 14 this morning as we continue on in our prayer time this week, or, or I should say even yesterday, I was talking to a man that I, I, I'd met, I mean, I'd not really met before, who his grandson plays on Silas's baseball team. And, um, and I was, he was asking me, what are you preaching on right now? What, what are you doing in your church? And I told him prayer. And we had this discussion. And one of the things that was interesting about the discussion was he's like, he stopped me in kind of in the middle of, of my, you know, going on and on like I do. And he said, um, this is fascinating. Fascinating. I never thought about how the scripture teaches us to pray. Wow. Such is the church today that we don't know how to pray and we don't think about the Scripture teaching us to pray. And I'm not saying necessarily here, but I am saying as you look at the broader evangelical culture, sometimes I just shake my head as I think, are, are, are we really Christians? Is the Lord using these things in our nation and our world now to shake loose those who hold on for whatever reason they hold on to or are not really His. I do not know. But we look to the Lord to teach us to pray. And so as we go through this today, you'll see how Paul's prayers are very poignant to us as Christians, as believers, as we walk in this world. So it all began with a businessman. This businessman traveled, as far as we know, he went to um, Ephesus from Colossae to, to, to do business. It's possible he went to visit someone or something like that, but it seems like it was a business trip. And he went there and he, it was a normal time for him except he began to hear about this guy who was drawing all those people uh, in the city of Ephesus around him to tell them about some man named Jesus who died on the cross. So Philemon listened and, and he heard Paul's words and Paul was saying things like this, that, that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. The Savior, the one to come to redeem them. But he was also saying that he was not only the Savior of Israel, but of the whole world. Philemon heard his words. He, he heard about the testimony of Paul, how he was going around and he was healing people. He was casting out demons. And so he believed. We don't know exactly when, but there was another man there too. And he was listening to Paul. And he heard Paul preach the gospel. And he was from Colossae too. His name was Epaphras. And he heard the Word of God. And he believed too. Now we don't know what happened much after that. But what we do know is those two men got together. And what I think, at least in my heart and mind, is, is, that, is, is, is that Philemon had the money. And Epaphras had the heart and the desire to preach the gospel. And so he took the gospel back to his friends and his neighbors and the people of Colossae. And a spark happened there. And I want you to stop and I want you to think about that spark just for a moment. Do you realize that in that city, no one had ever heard of the gospel? And it took fire. 
And what always happens in the New Testament, and what should always happen always around us, is that when you go to a new place, and there's a spark, and, and people begin to believe that a church has created. And this church was, was the granddaughter of Paul, because Paul didn't plant this church. Paul led other people to Christ, and then they planted the church. And all through the next years of Paul's life, he prayed for this church. He was concerned. It was his granddaughter. Who in here has a granddaughter or a grandson that they don't think, I want them to prosper. I want them to grow. I want them to be the best that they can be. And so Paul prayed. The question is, what did he pray? What would he have prayed from for this church, especially sitting in a in a under house arrest in Rome? What would he have prayed? Look in your Bible, chapter one, verse nine. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask You, Father, to push it into our hearts and our minds. May it be more real than the air we breathe, Lord. May we learn and grow and glorify You. In Jesus' name, amen. So, many of you, now probably not so many of you younger people, although maybe, perhaps, but probably a good many of you older folks in our church, when you were a little child and you were going to go out somewhere, or when you were a teenager and you were ready to go out with a bunch of friends, your parents may have said these words to you. Now listen, as you go there, Junior, remember who you are. And where you came from. Remember who you are. And where you came from. That's Paul's sentiment here. That he is praying for the people of Colossae. Although, and I want you to think about this. He has never met these people. He's never met them. He's never been there. Paul never stopped praying for them. He never stopped being concerned. And so the question is, what does Paul pray for again and again and again on behalf of these people over the years? And why is it so important? Why? So today we're going to see two important ingredients for our prayers for one another. First of all, our knowledge of God's will. Our knowledge of God's will. And then secondly, that we would be pleasing to the Lord. 
So let's consider, first of all, the prayer for knowing God's will. If you'll look with me in verse 9, we want to pause here. We want to stop here because when we think about God's will, we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the knowledge of God's will? Just what is that? How, how are we to view that? What is that about? The reality is that we often, when we think about God's will, we often think about it in maybe different ways. You know, when you're asking for God's will, lots of times you're thinking about it in terms of a vocation. Lord, what should I do with my life? College students know this well. They're going through these classes. They're taking these things. There's all these classes they could take. And they're wondering as they go along throughout that process, am I doing this the right way? Am I really going through the classes I should be going? Will they prepare me for the future? Lord, what should I do with my life? What should I, should I take this job that's been offered to me if you're an adult? Should I, should I move careers? Should I, should I consider this job? Unfortunately, and I'll say this, unfortunately, lots of times we look at that only from a monetary sort of position. If it pays more money, I'm going to work there. I can't tell you how many people I've seen blow their life up and make huge mistakes over more money. It's amazing. So beware of that, okay? Just think about that. The next thing we may pray for, it's very close to that, is, is we pray for the future. Lord, what do you want me to do next? What are the next steps? What are the next issues that I need to deal with? For those of you who are younger, and when I was in college, it was always on the hall of the men's dorm. All the guys were praying, Lord, who do you want me to marry? What spouse do you want for me? How can I find her? Where am I going to find this, this woman of my dreams? It's too bad that we don't have an Abraham, a servant of Abraham to go and send out for us to go find us a wife, right? That's not how it works. I wish it did work that way. It worked out for Abraham, so Isaac very well. But for us, it doesn't work that way, does it? But that's one of the things that we will pray for is, Lord, we'll, who do you want me to marry? Uh, some of us, including me, because I hate buying uh, expensive things. You know, it's funny. I can, I can write a check for my kids' tuition in college, which is very expensive, and not think a thing about it. But, I, but just a few weeks ago, I had to buy a car. And I hate that. Oh, I'm not kidding you. I hate it. And so I prayed about it quite a bit. Lord, Find me a car. Don't let me buy a lemon. Please guide me. Please direct me. And I just trust that He will. And so anytime, if you're moving, if you're buying something like that, you will pray lots of times, I need your help, Lord. What is your will? But D.A. Carson reminds us of this. Listen to this quote by D.A. Carson. None of this is intrinsically bad. There are many ways in which the Lord does lead us, and we should not despise them. Nevertheless, the focus is often quite misleading, perhaps even dangerous. For it encourages me to think of the Lord's will primarily in terms of my future, my vocation, my needs. And that is often another form of self-centeredness. No matter how piously put. Worse, it expunges from my consciousness the dominant ways in which the Bible speaks of the will of the Lord. 
In other words, the way we often think of God's will is not the same way that God looks at His will. How do we know what God's will is? Look with me. If you have notes, your sermon notes, I've got a list of verses there. Micah 6.8 is one of my favorites. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world. Notice that. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by the testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. What is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God? So how do you determine the will of God there? By being conformed and transformed by the renewing of your mind. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Ephesians 5, 15-17 Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 It is God's will that you should be sanctified. In other words, that you should grow in grace. That you should grow closer to Him. Psalm 143.10 Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Now this last passage here is really gives us a, a pretty good focus of them all, doesn't it? To do the will of God is to do what He has mandated us to do throughout His Word. And, 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 and it helps us and it, it grows us and it calls us to Him and it, and it dives us deep into His heart and into His understanding. It does transform our mind. His Word reveals to us just what it is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength and our neighbor as ourselves. And so so Paul prays here that we would be joyfully encouraged to get into the Word of God. To not only get it, because you could just read it. You can read it blankly. You can read it, you know, just... I've got to get my quiet time in. I'm going to get over here. I'm going to, I'm going to just read it. Okay, boom, I'm done. Let's go, let's go about my business. No, we have to hear it. We have to embrace it. And He calls us to live the Word out. That is what God's will is. If we, for example, are out seeking for a spouse, and we're praying about it as we go, and yet we have not sought to know what God has said about that particular issue, And believe me, I assure you, he has said some things about that. Then, is there a desire to pursue God's will? If we are going to go into business with someone, you will still apply that same principle, do not be unequally yoked. I think I've used this illustration before. I had a good friend in South Carolina who went into business with an unbeliever who embezzled thousands of dollars. Guess whose name was in the business along with that man? The believer. Guess who paid the highest price in that mess? The believer. 
Now, would he have known the will of God if he would have looked at that principle and put that principle to work in his life? One of my Old Testament professors used to say, because he studied actually in Jerusalem and he was a Hebrew scholar, and he says, one of the things that I find interesting is people will go on and on about Jews and all they care about is money and all they care about is this and that and all these things. He goes, what they've done is they've read the Proverbs and they've put them to work. And so their businesses typically work well. We would do wise to read the Proverbs. Whether it's taxes, whether it's politics, whatever the case may be, we ought to be hearing from God's Word and listening. Again, is there a true desire to pursue God's will? Or is it much more about what we want, what we desire? And and listen to this. If that type of life decision making, that we're just not really considering the Lord, we're not really thinking about what He says in His Scripture about how we should live, if we're not really doing that, is it even fair to call ourselves Christians? Is it? To do the will of God is to do that which He has mandated through His Word. Sometimes it is difficult. Sometimes it is hard. Sometimes it's just understanding the, very, the day by day by day ways that He's laid out for us to live before Him in this world. It's really that simple. It's really that simple. But, and here's the thing, there is something even more desirable that Paul is praying for here for them. Not just that they would understand the moral will of God. But when he prays that God will fill the Colossians with all the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom of every sort, Paul is praying that the Colossians had the penetrating power of the very word of God as illuminated by the Holy Spirit to give deeper and more graceful insight into the wonderful, redemptive revelation of Christ and all His promises. As they turn to the Word of God, which you have to understand for them, would have been the Old Testament. As they looked in the Old Testament, as they were taught by Paul, as they were taught by Epaphras, and maybe even Philemon, who was a leader in that church, He desired them, Paul desired them to see that God's will is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. That they would see more clearly God's plan of redemption for all of mankind and the renewal of all things as laid out from the beginning. And and all that totally revolves around Jesus The man Jesus. The son Jesus. So you see full knowledge comes through the spirit of the living God uniting our hearts in complete commitment to Jesus Christ. This knowledge is is the best possible knowledge of life because it leads to spiritual wisdom and understanding. In other words, to know the person of Christ is to find the key to understanding everything. Once you understand Jesus, everything falls into place. If you're a Christian, you understand exactly what I'm talking about because you see this world differently. 
You see the answers that the world provides as foolishness. You see the craziness of the thinking all around you. How up is down and down is up in, in all sorts of ways. If you're really seeking Him, you will find in Him all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. How incredible. Does this knowledge matter to you? Are you more concerned about getting ahead or getting what you want? Or getting to know God? What is the first thing that you pick up in your hands in the morning? Is it the newspaper? Is it your phone? Is it maybe your laptop? Do you pick it up to be filled with the news and the happenings? Maybe in the news or the, your friends or whatever the case may be. Are you, are you picking that up first to be uh, informed and filled with the news of the day? Or are you picking up His Word to be filled with the news of eternity? Do you desire to know more and more of Him? You see, this is Paul's model prayer and it teaches us to pray that we would know God's will, specifically Christ Jesus. That we would pray that for ourselves and for one another. That we would pray continually as a church, Lord, may we have knowledge of the will of God. Now with this in place, with this as sort of a foundational uh, platform here, Paul goes on to the purpose of this knowledge. What is the purpose of this knowledge? What is this about? Why do they need to know these things? Our second point is this. A prayer to be pleasing to the Lord. In verses really 10 through 14 there. A prayer to be pleasing to the Lord. If you look there in verse 10, you'll see that it's, it's evident that Paul does not want these people to gain knowledge for knowledge's sake. For in Scripture's growing, uh, or I should say knowing God, transforms how we live. So when we know the will of God, it begins to transform how we live. And that's what Paul was talking about in, in Romans there. That our minds would be transformed. That we would live out of that truth. When, um, when my kids were young, and I don't even know if Mia rem remembers this or not, or Ian, either one. We read this uh, book together by Susan and Richie Hunt. It's called Discovering Jesus in Genesis. Discovering Jesus in Genesis. And, and the children of the story, their names are Caleb and Cassie and Daniel. And they're actually being discipled by an older man by the name of Sir John. And he's Scottish. So it'd be like, you know, Conrad, you know, uh, discipling our children here. He's Scottish. And he's, and he's uh, trying to inspire them and to teach them how to follow Jesus. And so he begins his time of discipleship with them and telling them a story. It's a true story. It's an incredible story. It's a motivational story. On July 23rd, uh, 1637, the dean of St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh stood up and attempted to read for the first time in in the cathedral from Charles the First Book of Common Prayer. 
And you have to understand, the Scottish people did not want anything to do with this. They wanted God's Word to regulate how they worshipped and not some book called the Common Prayer. And the Scottish people saw it as something as to affront it as it was being forced upon them by the country of England. They believed that it contained Roman Catholic errors. They believed that um, the section on communion was more like mass than their view of communion, which was very Protestant and Reformed. They, they saw in it in, in, um, uh, instructed readings from the Apocrypha. They saw in it celebration of saints' days. As he began to read, as the dean began to read, a woman named Jenny Gaddy stood up. She took her stool. She threw it at the man. Threw it at his head. And she said these words, Devil, you Catholic. False thief. Dare you say Mass in my hearing. The whole church then erupted. A brouhaha started. Stools were thrown. There was yelling. There was a riot, if you will. A peaceful riot at that. And this caused quite a brouhaha in the church in Scotland. Her courage gave birth to what is called the Covenanters of Scotland who stood on the principles of the Reformation. Their motto was this, for Christ's crown and covenant. For Christ's crown and covenant. So in the story, as the children heard this, they were amazed and Sir John gave them one assignment that they were to do each morning in their notebooks. And he said, you are to get up and in your notebook you are to write for Christ's crown and covenant. Why did he do that? He wanted them to have their minds set on Christ to begin with. He wanted them to see that this woman had courage and stood up for things which she believed in from the Scripture. And He wanted them to begin to put that to work in their own lives. That their lives must be lived for Christ and His covenant. This is precisely what Paul is praying here for these Colossians. Spiritual wisdom and understanding help us to understand what is truly important in life. The knowledge of His will leads to a deeper faith, greater virtue, greater service, and thus walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And so Paul in his prayers here, and this is amazing, he just lays out what this looks like. He gives us four characteristics, beginning in verse 10, of what it looks like to walk pleasing to God. First of all, believers please God in bearing fruit in every work. Good works are not the means by which to achieve salvation, but the natural result of it. Remember Paul's great commentary of this in the book of Ephesians? In chapter 2.10, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so hear me, good works in the life of a believer is to please God because good works are the plan for the believer's life. Secondly, God is pleased when we are increasing in the knowledge of God. 
isn't it amazing here where Paul comes back and he, he, he makes the knowledge of God both the starting point and the resulting characteristic of a God-pleasing life. In other words, the more we know about God's character, His promises, His ways, His expectations, His covenants with us, the more our lives come into conformity with what pleases Him. Now let me tell you something about this that I think is important is that when we get to know God, sometimes it will be offensive. Because God is not like us. Yesterday I saw a big string, a friend of mine who's an apologetic person, he put up a, a, a video about the Crusades and one guy just attacked him and said, God is a God of violence. How dare you follow the God of the Bible? And he just listed all these things. And I'm sitting there, and you know what verse comes to my mind? Where it says in, in um, Exodus, it says, God, the Lord your God is a warrior. He is a warrior. What does that person not understand about God? That God is just and God is good. The question and I wanted to ask that person is this. Do you, do you think we should never have any justice at all? That people should kill and rape and pillage and do whatever and it's all good? Or does God, the good God, the Creator God, actually hold justice in His hands as well? And might He execute that in how He sees fit? Which is exactly why He tells us again. This is one of those things we know about the will of God. He says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. We, need, we not need to be um, warriors in terms of um, vengeance. We need to be warriors in terms of Proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the good news. And so as we get to know God, His character, His purposes, His person, His covenants, it helps us to understand who He is and live that out. That's how we become pleasing to Him. Third, what we see here in verse 11, is that our lives please Him when we are characterized as being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience. Listen to that again. Strengthen with all power according to His glorious might. For what? All endurance and patience. Life is difficult. It's, it's challenging. There are situations and people um, that we come across in our lives, our own personal struggles. And, and, and the only way that we can deal with these things, that we can deal with these issues, is by the power of His might, which helps us to endure with patience. Don't you see this in the life of our Lord? I mean, you think about what He faced. The impossible people. The impossible situations. He who is truly the glory, the very glory of God, exemplified that power of endurance and patience. While we were still enemies, He died for us. And this brings Paul to his knees to pray for this power for the Colossians. Finally, believers please God when they are joyfully giving thanks to the Father for all blessings of salvation. Just as Paul was clear to point out the, the means to please God, so he was equally clear about the blessings of salvation for which we are to give thanks. This great salvation... If it be true, no matter what life situation we face, no matter what troubles we're going through, 
No matter what issues we have, because of our great salvation, we ought to always give joyful thanks. Remember, Paul writes us in prison. If you were in prison, could you give joyful thanks? Paul could. Why? Because he knew the Lord. Because he knew the unfolding of the Lord's plan. Praise be to his name for life and for our great salvation. Now here we have in these few statements a wonderful description of the characteristics of God of a God-pleasing life, bearing fruit, growing, Holy Spirit empowerment, and giving thanks. Again, bearing fruit, growing, Holy Spirit empowerment, giving thanks. Would you today and this week reflect on this prayer? Consider how Paul prayed this for those Colossians. Those he didn't even know. And would you pray that for one another? You may not know each other as well as you would like in this room. That's just life. But that does not mean we can't pray that for one another. So be encouraged to do that. Would you make time to do that? As you do, I want you to think about the statement from this commentary of John Woodhouse. I've got the, the, the quote printed for you in, in the notes there at the bottom. Listen to what he says. I have no doubt that Paul told the Colossians what he was constantly praying for so that they would be clear about what they should be longing for. And so, that they would not make the mistake of underestimating the astonishing significance of this faith. He wanted them to understand how significant their faith was. How incredible it was. How it held them. How it, how it pushed them along. How it has a goal at the end of it. And here is the issue. We are the people of God. We are saved by grace through faith. And the reality is that there are glories that await those who are His. How can we not live a life pleasing of Him, bearing fruit in His power and strength with thanksgiving, knowing of the glories that are to come? As Paul has come back full circle, how he started the letter with thankfulness, he wants to leave the Colossians and us today with the reminder of why we should joyfully give thanks. The Christian life is to be lived in the power of redemption. The source of Christian joy is the fuel for godly living. So what has Christ done? Look at verse 12 through 14. Marvel at its truth. Marvel at the prayer. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. You have been qualified because of Christ. Number two, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And number three, the Father has given us redemption, the forgiveness of sins through our King Christ Jesus. So, 
the qualification, the deliverance and redemption of those who now have Jesus as their King is nothing less than being born again. It is being forgiven for our sins. It is becoming a new creation. It is being adopted as the sons and daughters of the living King. David Garland has pointed out that most Americans today know the Exodus story, sadly, from the movie The Ten Commandments. Now, you may love that movie, and you can love that movie. That's fine. But notice what he says. He says, as a consequence, the Exodus imagery has become dull and shallow. It has become dull. Why is that? Because I think those movies, especially, like the focus is Charlton Heston, right? And Yul Brenner, right? And, and Charlton Heston walks around like this, you know. I don't know that Moses really walked around like that, you know. And I like Charlton Heston, don't get me wrong. But how does that inform you of the true exodus? David Garland says that he would encourage us that it might be helpful for us to recapture the imagery of what it was to be delivered in the exodus by appealing to other vivid images of liberation to understand our own liberation from sin. For example, we might compare the Christian exodus to the liberation of POW camps allied uh, by the troops, by, pulled out by the allied troops after World War II, and perhaps even other wars we faced. The stark pictures of piled up corpses and the shrunken, hollowed eyes of survivors, he says, provides a good image for us as to what happens to humans under the power of sin. Shockingly, prisoner of, of war survivors have not always been welcomed home with open arms by the world and have often even continued to suffer hardship and humiliation. Christians, though liberated from sin's power, continue to live in a world dominated by sin. They must endure with not only patience, but endure a world still held in bondage, but unwillingly able to see or to hear, nor sadly have the desire to be set free. The difference is, is that our hope lies secure in a kingdom of light untouched by the crossfire of politics, of global pandemic, a raging nation, or the ravages of sin. And so the question that I want you to ask yourself this morning is this. Have you forgotten whose you are? Have you forgotten where you came from? Have you forgotten where you're going? Do not forget. For you are a child of the King. And behold, He is making all things new. And so take heart and walk by grace. Walk in the dignity of one who is a child of the King. And do please continue to pray that we would know this great God, that we would understand His will, and that we would live lives that please Him as He brings us home. Let's pray.
Father, thank You so much for Your love and mercy to us. I pray that this Word would drive deep into our hearts. That we would desire to know You and Your will. That we would desire to know the redemption plan. That You, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit set out before the foundations of the world. That we would know what kingdom values You desire us to live under. And we would even know how hard that is. But with Your Spirit's empowerment, Lord, we can live lives pleasing to You. Only in Your power. And so we rest and look to You alone for our salvation. For you are a great God and King. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.